welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. It's lovely to have you along this evening. Um, We're going to begin. Um, We have a huge amount of material to cover in these next four weeks. And um, it's plain to me that we aren't going to go anywhere close to finishing the Gospel of John. So we'll make a start. Um, I was just saying to somebody before, I started off this incredibly ambitious program thinking, oh, you know, we've got six hours over, you know, four weeks. It should be real fun. Um, I'm up to about 170 pages, and we've barely got to Gospel of John chapter eight. So uh, I don't even know if we're going to get that far, but let's launch in. Um, I want to warn you right off the bat, this isn't going to be some light devotional sort of chatter. We're going to dive into this book. This is the most incredible book, and we're going to take time to really delve into it, and even if we only get through chapters three or four, um, I think and I'm hoping that it'll be a really worthwhile journey for you. you. You really will need some writing material, Um, because you're going to be five minutes in, and if you haven't got any writing material, you're going to think, I am out of my depth and I haven't got a paddle here. So if you want to scoot up the back and grab something, you better do that really quickly while I pray. Is that all right? Because I'll close my eyes and you can disappear. (laughs) Father, we thank you that we can gather. We thank you for the incredible power of your word to change lives. You promised, Lord, that your word would be like a two-edged sword that would go deep, into our hearts, that it wouldn't just affect our intellect, but it would shape the way we are at the very deepest levels of our being. We thank you for this incredible book. We thank you that it's touched so beautifully and profoundly by your precious Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, as we look into it, we ask that you would guide us and lead us, that there would be things said and lodged Uh, that would lodge in our hearts and would be material that you can work on to change us in the days that lie ahead. We give you praise and with anticipation um, we open our hearts to your word. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. This is truly the most amazing of books and uh, I don't know if any of you have studied the Gospel of John before. Um, I'm hoping that you've read it. Um, If you haven't, I really would encourage you over the next few weeks to read and and reread this book. If you have done any study on the Gospel of John in a kind of an academic setting, you will know that first uh, what they what they do initially is they will take you into preliminary preliminary issues and they will talk through things like authorship, um, dates, and so on. Um, uh, Carson um, spends 108 pages of his large work on John just dealing with preliminary issues. Craig Keener, who's written a two-volume set on the Gospel of John, takes seven chapters of those, uh, of those books to, to deal into the preliminary issues. We're just basically going to touch on them and skip over them. Um, but maybe some of you would like to have some more reading material or to delve deeper or I might say something that you think, oh, I'd like to find out more about that. If you'd like to, anytime you can ask and I hopefully will be able to recommend some material that will allow you to go deeper. 
but we're just going to touch on those issues. So I want to start on the one that you know you probably should start on. Um, we call it the Gospel of John, but there are many people who say, well, it wasn't written by John. And so the whole issue of authorship comes up. Um, I'm going to go to the traditional line and say I believe it was written by John, son of Zebedee, you know, of Peter, James, and John. That's that three. I believe it was. The reason for that is internal evidence from the gospel itself, I believe, indicates it was John, son of Zebedee. The writer of this book claims to be uh, an eyewitness. It's, it's eyewitness testimony. So it's highly unlikely that the author is not one of the twelve. It's most likely that one of the 12 disciples wrote this, saying, I, I saw these things happen. Of the 12, then, we can eliminate Peter, Philip, Thomas, Judas Iscariot, Judas, son of James, and Nathaniel, all who are named by the author. Right? The author just describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. All of these other people, the ones that I just read, are named. That leaves us Matthew, Simon the Zealot, James the son of Alphaeus, and John the son of Zebedee as possible eyewitness testimony of, of the gospel. Now, Matthew wrote his own gospel, so we can count him out. Simon and James are somewhat obscure figures, and no one, no scholar that I know of or have read, have suggested that they could possibly be the author. And that leaves us with, by deduction, with John, the son of Zebedee. As I say, he's described as the disciple Jesus loved. At the end of the book, Peter is dialoguing with Jesus and it says he turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved. And he leaned, he, this was the one that leaned on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper and said, Master, which one will betray you? That's John chapter 21, verse 20. And in verse 24, the disciple says, I am that disciple. I was the one that lay on his breast at the Last Supper. I saw the events that are recorded here, and we all know that my account of these things is accurate. That's for verse 24. This disciple, though he's not named, is regularly seen side by side with Peter, and that suggests one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. It's clearly not Peter, since he was named. James was killed by Herod early in church history. You can read that in Acts chapter 12. Um, so again, that just simply leaves John, the son of Zebedee, as the one who's most likely. Now, I'm skipping over huge debate here, okay? And I just want to acknowledge that I'm being incredibly simplistic, just, just pushing it all down. Um, so you've got internal evidence, you've got external evidence that points to John's authorship. Arrhenius, the church father in the second half of the second century, referenced John, the son of Zebedee, as the author of the gospel. And he claimed that the informant that told him that was in fact a disciple of John. Clement of Alexandra also stated that John was the author of the gospel. So from the second century on, the church is virtually unanimous in attributing the fourth gospel to this man, John, the son of Zebedee. And that's all I'm going to say about authorship, okay? Place and date. Now, th these, these are actually important because they, they bear on things that unfold in the gospel. But there are basically two main ideas in terms of the date that the gospel was written. There's an early date, 
the first century in the, the 60s, so we're talking now 30 years after the crucifixion. Early date is the 60s, the later date is the 90s. There is no reference in the Gospel of John to the fall of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70. And that is either because it hadn't happened and it was written early, or a significant period of time had passed and the author didn't think that it was worth talking about, which is an interesting possibility. So um, most scholars, the majority of scholars, go with the late date, okay? So that John wrote it in Ephesus in the mid-90s. As, a, as quite an old man. Irenaeus said that John published the gospel while he was in Ephesus somewhere between 85 AD and 95 AD. It's possible to argue for an early date. For example, it really is hard to imagine that John wouldn't mention the fall of Jerusalem if it had happened. You say, well, it was, you know, 20 years. Well, yeah, but think of um, 9-11, think of Princess Diana's death, that, that's 20 years ago, and it constantly comes up in the media. You say, well, we're not living in a media day. No, but this was a traumatic, momentous event in Jewish history. Jesus spoke to it. It's hard to imagine that John wouldn't have referenced it. Having said that, um, we really don't know. If you push me, I would probably go with a later date. And there are reasons for that which I won't uh, go into. It is the last gospel that was written. That's pretty much unanimous in terms of scholarship. Um, and it differs markedly from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to, and you might have heard this term, as the synoptic gospels. And that's because they are broadly similar. They can easily be harmonized. They, they syncopate, which is why we call them the synoptic gospels. John is quite different. It's different in a number of different ways. It is different geographically. The synoptics concentrate on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, in, in the northern part of Israel, while John's emphasis is on Jesus in Judea and Jerusalem. If you check, write this down, check it up later, but in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, it says of Jesus, uh, Jesus he departed into Galilee. And then in Matthew 19, verse 1, it says, he left Galilee. So everything between John 4.12 and Matthew, sorry, Matthew 4.12 and Matthew 19.1 happens in the northern region of Galilee. That's the majority of the book. And remember, the synoptics cover basically that same area. So John's gospel is different from the others in that the majority of his uh, story happens in the south in Judea and Jerusalem. So it's different geographically. Secondly, it's different chronologically from the synoptic gospels. Actually, without John's gospel, it would be very, very difficult to, uh, to establish the links of Jesus's public ministry. If you only had the synoptic gospels, you would possibly conclude that it was one to maybe one and a half years in length in terms of public ministry. It's John's gospel that reports three, perhaps even four Passovers. So that of course extends out, since Passover happened obviously once a year, that extends his public ministry out to three, perhaps three and a half years in length. So it's quite different chronologically. 
John records more about Jesus' early ministry than the synoptics. The first five chapters of John happen between Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. If you've got your Bibles, and I really recommend you bring them with you, and don't rely on the screen, because I'm not going to be putting stuff up, okay? So if you've got your Bible, quickly turn to Matthew chapter 4. In my haste to come down, would you believe I left my Bible behind? Of all of the things that you want to leave behind, the Bible is not the one you you leave behind when you're doing a Bible study. But anyway, in verse 11 it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Verse 12, Now when he heard that John was delivered up, he withdrew into Galilee. So we've got the temptation and then Jesus going into Galilee. The first five chapters of John fit between those two verses. So between Matthew chapter four, verse 11, and Matthew chapter four, verse 12, we have in John the calling of the disciples, the wedding at Cana of Galilee, the first cleansing of the temple, his conversation at night with Nicodemus, his conversation at the well of Sychar with the woman at Samaria, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida, the conflict with the Jews about his claim to be equal with God. All of that happens between those two verses in Matthew. Now, that that makes sense when, when, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I read Matthew's gospel, obviously, and you hear the calling of the fishermen. Jesus walks by, some fishermen are working at their nets, and Jesus says, come, follow me. And I used to think, they haven't met him in the story thus far, and they just drop their nets, leave their business, leave their families, and follow him. What kind of voice was that? You know, that they just, it it sounds zombie-like as they just, yes, Lord. why, Why wouldn't they say, who are you? Why would you, why, what are you calling me for? I don't even know who you are. Why would I follow you? When you know that all of those things that happened and that they had been with Jesus, seen water turned to wine, seen the cleansing of the temple, uh, the nobleman's son healed, the, the, the lame man healed, that makes sense. When Jesus walks by, they already know him. They have been with him, at least temporarily, coming and going from their fishing business. And when he says, come, follow me, they say, we're coming. we've seen enough to make us want to come. So John's gospel makes sense chronologically when you see where it sits. There's a history that precedes that encounter that makes their response reasonable. Now between John chapter five and John chapter six, most of the Galilean ministry that's recorded by the synoptic gospels happens. If you, if you don't have that awareness of the chronology, it, it can be kind of, like, I, I don't get what's happening. I don't understand how it flicks from there to there. So it's different geographically. It's different chronologically. John is different in terms of his content. John, as I said before, wrote much later than the others. Without doubt, John was familiar with their material, didn't feel the need simply to repeat it. And so he leaves out a lot of what the synoptics cover. 
In John, there's no mention of the, uh, of the Christmas story. There's no um, birth events. There's no genealogies. There's no mention of Jesus' baptism. There's no mention of the calling of the 12. There's not a single case in John of Jesus confronting the demonic, which is very prevalent in all of the synoptics. There's no Sermon on the Mount. There's no transfiguration. There's no mention of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's no mention of the Last Supper. There's no record of the ascension. So he leaves out a lot of material that the synoptics cover, and then he puts into his story a lot of material that the others don't reference. There's seven, possibly eight miracles in the Gospel of John. Five are not mentioned in the synoptics. The two that are common are the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. But all of the other signs that John references aren't mentioned in the synoptics. He concentrates on Jesus' ministry to individuals rather than the masses. And he records seven key conversations that the synoptics don't reference. There's one with Nathaniel. There's one with Nicodemus. There's one with the Samaritan woman. There's one with Martha, with Pilate, with Mary Magdalene, with Peter. So there are these individual conversations. Jesus in John's gospel doesn't teach in parables, but rather he teaches in long, sometimes quite controversial discourses. John records more of what Jesus said about himself than the others do. And I'm sure those of you who have studied John's gospel, you know that he makes these great I am statements and there are seven of them. Actually, John seems to like the number seven. In the bulk of his gospel, epilogue excluded, there are seven miracles, there are seven deep conversations that he has, there are seven I am terms that he references uh, with, a, with a predicate. That means I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life, the way, and the truth. I am the true vine. And then on top of that, there are seven other I am statements that don't have a predicate where he said, before Abraham was, I am. And there are seven of those statements. He seems to have a delight for the number seven. As I say, seven signs, seven key conversations, seven major discourses, seven witnesses that, that um, back up his claims in the seven I am statements. Different in content. John's gospel is selective. He really only covers about 20 days of Jesus's three and a half year long ministry. He records only seven miracles of all that he observed. Eight if you count the epilogue, which we'll talk about some other time. Matthew has 20 miracles recorded. There are 18 in Mark, there are 20 in Luke. John just has these seven. When we come to why did John write the way he did? What was John's raison d'etre? What was his purpose in writing? We aren't left to guess. He has a formal statement of purpose. He says, this is why I did what I did. And if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, you have that statement of purpose. It's, he says this, John gave, uh, Jesus gave a great many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in that faith you may have life as his disciples. Okay. So this is why I wrote. 
He said, I was selective in the number of signs. There was dozens that he did. I have picked out seven. And the seven signs that I have picked out are in order that you might believe. You might believe that he's the son of the living God as he claimed he was. And because of that belief, you might have life. It's interesting that the Greek language has present tense continuous for the verbs in that statement. It's, they're not, e it's not easy to translate into English, but it means to be continually doing something. So that is probably better translated like this. These are written that you may go on believing that Jesus was the Son of God and that by going on believing, you will go on having life. So it seems that John was writing not simply to start life, not primarily as an evangelistic tool to get people across the line into life, although obviously it was going to do that as well. But it's written to people like you and me that we might go on believing in order that we might go on having life. Come to believe and keep on believing. So there are three key words in that statement of purpose and they are signs, belief, and life. The signs that Jesus, the, the, let's have a look at the word signs. I think that might be my phone. Apologies. Um, John uses the Greek word simeon for signs. It's a word that implies that the deed or the miracle has a significant meaning behind it. They, they are a material witness to an underlying spiritual truth. So it's not just about raw power, it's about a signpost. The things that I am showing you, the things that I have written, they are simeon, they are signs that point to a deep underlying truth. Each of the signs that John references are designed to, to display a specific characteristic of Jesus' power and person. So one of the books that uh, I've read numerous on John's Gospel. One of the ones that I studied many years ago was um, a book called The Gospel of Belief by Merrill Tenney. And Merrill Tenney talked about the seven signs and he said, changing water into wine, which is the first sign found in chapter two, we see Jesus master of quality. The best wine is produced last. The second sign is the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter four. And what we see here is Jesus as master over distance and space. He heals this boy from a distance of 30 plus kilometers. Just says, go home, your boy's well. The third miracle is the healing of the lame man. And in that miracle, we see Jesus master over time. This man had been sick, an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus just, 38 years it's over, it's gone. In the fourth one, the feeding of the 5,000, we see Jesus master over quantity. The fact that he only had a little boy's lunch was no problem. He fed them all with material left over. The fifth sign, walking on water, Jesus is master over natural law. The sixth sign is the healing of the man born blind in John chapter nine. Jesus is master over misfortune. And the raising of Lazarus in Chapter 11, Jesus is master over death. J. Sodelow Baxter in his book on John says that all the miracles involve transformation from sadness to gladness in the case of the water turned to wine, 
from disease to health in the case of the nobleman's son, from paralysis to energy in the case of the lame man, from hunger to fullness in the case of the feeding of the 5,000, from agitation to tranquility in walking on the water, from darkness to light in the blind man's healing, from death to life in terms of Lazarus being raised, and then in the epilogue, from frustration and failure to copious success in the fishes that were gathered in. Absolute transformation. These signs point beyond themselves and demonstrate Jesus' transcendent control over the factors of life uh, over which man have no control. Things like quality, space, time, quantity, natural law, misfortune, and death. We don't have control over this. John says these signs show that Jesus did. And he said, and I've written these signs so that you might believe. Naturally, when supernatural signs like that are present, there are two reactions that are possible, acceptance or rejection. And John reveals throughout the gospel, one of the themes that runs through John's gospel is this battle between belief and unbelief, between acceptance and rejecting, rejection. It's the ongoing struggle of John's gospel. John's purpose in writing is to swing the reader to the side of acceptance embodied in this word, believe. The Greek word is the word pistio, and it's used 98 times in this gospel. It's, it's one of the key words of John's gospel. It's always in the verb form, which means it is an action, not just an intellectual assent. In effect, you could translate it, you need to believe into. You have to believe into and keep on believing. Keep on leaning into me, readjusting your life because you have received me. That's what faith is about. So all of these things are written to convince you to be one of those believing people where your life is constantly being shaped by virtue of what you believe. Then he says, in order that. So these signs, so that you may believe and the outflow of that belief is that you may have life. Again, one of the key words of John's gospel. In Greek, in, in this gospel, there are two words for life. There's the word bios, which basically is the kind of life that we get from our parents. It's the natural life, the natural human life. It's not the word that John uses when he talks about eternal life. That's the Greek word zoe. And basically what he's saying is when you're a believer, bios will run out, but zoe never will. You know, in John chapter 11, verses 25, 26, when he's talking to Martha and Mary around uh, the raising of Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the zoe, the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, though bios will run out, he will zoe, he will, he will live eternally. Whoever has zoe and believes in me will, will never die, even though bios will run out. Do you believe that, he says to Mary? to Martha. Zoe is carefully defined by Jesus, okay? In, in John chapter 17, verse 33, this is the real and eternal Zoe, life, that they know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You want everlasting life? It's wrapped up in the knowledge of God and his son, Jesus. Otherwise, we have bias, and when bias runs out, that's it. John's gospel is saying, these are the signs. When you see those signs, you can believe and the end result of your belief will be Zoe. 
So that's John's statement of purpose. And, and you, the whole gospel is built around this. He's saying, when you read my gospel, you have to read it in the light of why I wrote it. I picked out selectively some signs so that you would become a believing person, an ongoing believing person, and the result for you would be Zoe. You will, you will get to know God, you'll experience life. Major themes, okay? The major themes that run in John, and I'm honestly just gonna flick over this, okay? First is it's Christology. It's a big word, but just simply it means at the heart of the Gospel of John is a presentation of Christ, who he is, okay? The synoptics focus more on what Jesus did uh, and, and what he said, John gives us a portrait of Jesus' inner life and his self-identity. The synoptics, in one sense, are a presentation of Jesus. John's gospel is the interpretation of Jesus. So it focuses on who Jesus is. There is a significant focus on another long word, soteriology, which is about salvation. And we are introduced early in the book of John to the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And the whole movement of the gospel plot is toward the cross and the resurrection where salvation will be achieved. John constantly uses Jesus using this phrase, my hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then you get to the end, now it's the hour. And it's all about the cross. It leads us to this place. There's another focus in John's gospel that is absent from the synoptics, and again, using the theological term, it's pneumatology. It's about the Holy Spirit. John's gospel contains the most explicit teaching on the Holy Spirit, the paraclete of all the gospels. So John 14 through 16, his, his teaching on the Holy Spirit is significant. John talks about um, the divine and the human community, the community of faith. And uh, um, the incredible temptation to divert and, and explain this more, but just simply to say the word one is a very potent word in John's gospel. It's used to convey two ideas, uniqueness, as in one and only, and unity, as in they were one in heart. And there is a connection between those ideas and they are both used to describe both God and the community of faith that, is, that has believed into God because of what his son Jesus has done. Um, I think I'll leave it at that because it's just too complicated to go into any depths beyond that. But the focus of, of the community of the Trinity and the community of belief is a, is a feature of John's gospel. Um, another thing uh, about John as you read it is his use of the Old Testament. John has sometimes been accused of being anti-Semitic, which is kind of weird, really, because John himself was a Jew. In the synoptics, the main focus of Jesus' opponents seems to come from the demonic. Jesus is doing, there's lots of exorcism. In John's gospel, there isn't one exorcism. The opposition comes from a group of people that he simply calls the Jews. Um, John himself, as I say, was a Jew and is deeply embedded in the Jewish story. 
and he's clearly not anti-Semitic. I mean, one of the functions of John's prologue, the very first verses of John, is to indicate how, starting at the Old Testament, people should read the story of Jesus. And we'll look at this in a minute, but the first five verses of the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. You can't read that without thinking about Genesis. In the beginning was the word. That's got to be read in the light of Genesis. The last portion of the prologue has got to be read in the light of Exodus. And we'll see why as we go on. But, but John pushes or puts the story of Jesus in a Jewish context. He's not anti-Semitic. He's telling the Jewish story. Um, Old Testament quotations are found throughout John's gospel. There aren't quite as many as Matthew. Matthew has um, a number more. But John has at least 19 direct quotations from the Old Testament, and then the gospel is enriched by an extraordinary number of frequent and subtle allusions to the Old Testament, well over 100. So John is deeply embedded in the Jewish story, and the points that he brings out, you, you can't understand them unless you understand the Jewish story. So John says, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Well, unless you know the Jewish story, that's gonna be meaningless. He's the king of Israel and he's Jacob's ladder, it says in chapter one. He's the new temple. He's the uplifted serpent. He's the true bread, the true manna. He's the true vine. He's Zachariah's pierced one. He's greater than Jacob, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham. All of this is in John. And unless you know the backstory, that's just gonna just go clean over your head. Another feature of John's gospel is, and I've referenced this briefly, is his relationship with individual believers. There's an emphasis on individuals, which in a, collective, a collectivist culture, uh, such as first century Judaism, it's, it's somewhat unusual. When you read Paul's literature, it always emphasizes the corporate nature of the, the community. We are the body of Christ. You know, there's, there's a corporate emphasis in Paul and the synoptics too. And John does that, but the word one is significant. Um, he, he highlights the faith and discipleship of individuals. I suspect that he may have been aware that in a rel relatively collectivistic culture, individuals need strong encouragement to step outside the social norms and expectations of a group in order to follow Jesus, and he goes for individuals. There are these seven conversations with key individuals that you don't find in the synoptics, and, and, the, and he highlights it in his language. The one who, 37 times in John's gospel. If anyone, 14 times in John's gospel. Everyone who. 12 times in John's gospel. He's, not, he's, he's got the masses, but he's going for individuals. As I said, there are these seven dialogues with individuals, Nathaniel, Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, Martha, Pilate, Mary Magdalene, Peter. These are highlighted. Now, there are other dialogues, but those seven are significant because of their relative length, and most of them, with the exception of Nathaniel, take place in private. 
So in John's gospel, he deals with individuals, he deals, he deals with them differently according to their needs and their circumstances. So John's gospel values the relationship of personal intimacy between the individual believer and, and Jesus, okay? They are the preliminary issues. As I say, D.A. Carson takes 100 pages, Craig Keener takes seven chapters, I've taken 35 minutes and I haven't done it justice. If you want to deal with uh, it in any more detail, I can recommend some literature. Let me give you, if you've got your pen, a breakdown of uh, this gospel, and uh, it's, we're gonna go from start to finish, and I'll give you the chapters and verses, and, and you can refer back to that later as we go through it. So John's gospel starts with what we call a prologue. That's chapter one, verse one, through to chapter one, verse 18. That's an introduction to the Gospel of John, and basically John lays down his key ideas, key themes, and says, as you're reading the rest of this material, think about my statement of purpose and read it through this lens. So that's the prologue. From chapter one, verse 19, through chapter four, verse 54, we have what Merrill Tenney calls a period of consideration. And it's the place in Jesus' early ministry where he offers himself to men and women, I'm using that generically, uh, for their evaluation and consideration. They start to look at his ministry, start to weigh it out. What on earth is going on here? Something is different. This man speaks with authority and clarity. What's happening here? Then from chapter five, verse one, through really uh, 11, 53, so chapters um, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. We have controversy and conflict. What Jesus is doing and saying stirs up a storm and the conflict grows and becomes incredibly controversial. He becomes very controversial. From 1154, through to 12.36, we have what Tenney calls a period of crisis. And then from 12.36 through to 17.26, we have a period of, comfort, of conference. This is Jesus alone with his disciples. Then we have a period of consummation from chapters 18 through to chapter 20, verse 31. This is the cross, this is the passion. This is where it ends, as it were. All builds to this point. And then the epilogue, which is chapter 21. All right, so that's, that's, that's one way of looking at John. Now, we will look at other ways you can look at it, but that's kind of a structure that we're gonna work our way through. So the prologue, the period of um, consideration, they're all C's to help you, the period of uh, controversy and conflict, the period of crisis, the period of conference, and the period of consummation followed by the epilogue. Let's look at the prologue, okay? The first 18 verses of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
The same came for a witness, to be a witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to be a witness of the light. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Um, that, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. And the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So the first 18 verses, I mean seriously. We could probably spend the next four weeks just there. This, this is unbelievably profound. Ancient writers commonly introduced the main themes or outlines of the topics to be covered at the beginning of their work. That was kind of an introduction. And in these verses, as I say, commonly called the prologue, John gives us essentially an explanation of all that will follow. So the prologue is a little bit like the foyer that you enter into before you get into the main part of the building. It's an introduction, and it's a lens through which we are to read the rest of the book. The themes that John introduces in the prologue will be repeated and expanded on throughout the remainder of the book. So in the prologue, in John 1, 4, he uses the word life. That word will occur 36 times in the gospel. He uses the word light. That will occur 23 times in the gospel. He uses the word witness. John came to be a witness. That will be used 47 times in John's 21 chapters. Believe in chapter 1 verse 7 will be used 98 times. The world will be used 78 times. Truth will be used 56 times. Glory will be used 42 times. Father will be used 136 times. So in the prologue, he's laying down the things that he's going to expand on in detail through the rest of his gospel. What is really clear as you read John's gospel is that Christianity is not primarily a philosophy. It's not primarily doctrine or ethics, although it involves all those things. Christianity is about a person. And to remove Jesus from Christianity is like trying to remove numbers from mathematics or like trying to take the sun out of daylight. It is what makes Christianity completely unique among world religions. Almost all other religions are based around teachings, ethics, philosophies, and so on, of, of their founders. Only Christianity is based on the founder's person. Others taught about God, Jesus claimed he was God. Thomas Schultz says, not one of the recognized religious leaders, not Moses, Paul, Buddha, Muhammad, or Confucius, ever claimed to be God. That is, with the exception of Jesus Christ. Christ is the only religious leader who ever claimed to be deity, and the only individual ever who has convinced a great portion of the world that he is, in fact, God. 
So Jesus is absolutely crucial. And what John does is he introduces him to us. Um, he, he wants us to know who he is, where he came from. When you are writing the biography of a person, one of the challenging things is where do you start the story? Do you start with his parents, with the person's childhood? Where do you launch into the story? And the four gospel writers all face that as they are writing their biography of Jesus. The answer to the question, where do I start, was determined by their ultimate objective in telling the story. So Mark dives straight into the story. He, he doesn't really worry about genealogies, where he comes from, his childhood. He just launches immediately into Jesus' public ministry. And he presents Jesus as the ideal servant who's come to do the will of God. A servant doesn't need a genealogy. Nobody's interested in the servant's genealogy. They just want to know what he's going to do. So Mark launches into that. His emphasis is on what Jesus did. Matthew went further back in the story. He was writing largely to a Jewish audience and he tries to show his audience that Jesus is the promised Messiah, King of Jewish prophecy and scripture. That's why in, John's, in Matthew's gospel, you have this phrase constantly, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written because he's trying to link the story of Jesus with the story that has preceded it. So he goes back to Jesus' birth, but he goes further back than that. Matthew starts with a genealogy that takes Jesus back to, Matthew, to, to Abraham's story. He links Jesus with the story of Abraham. Luke goes even further back in starting his story. He shows that Jesus is the perfect man. And his genealogy goes right back beyond Abraham to Adam to show that Jesus is a bona fide human being. So each has their own starting point depending on what they want to tell. John goes back the furthest of all. He goes back into eternity past. In the beginning was the word. It sounds like Genesis chapter one and it's meant to. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Genesis beginning refers to the start of material creation. John's beginning goes back further than that into eternity past. In the Greek, the definite article isn't present. It actually reads, in beginning. John's idea isn't that somewhere way back in the distant past, this person called the word began to exist. Rather, he's saying, no matter how far you go back, he existed. The first time you encounter the word, he's already in existence. He always was. And the idea that John's trying to convey is backed up by the use of the Greek word that's translated by our simple, simple English word was. In the beginning was the word. Now there are two Greek words that are translated by our one word was, and we lose the, the distinction. There, there's one, egenito, uh, which conveys the idea of something coming into being. And it's used in the prologue, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. There came into being at a point in time a man who was touched by God. His name was John. It's, uh, it's, it's used also in verse 14 where it says, and the word was made flesh. 
he came into being in flesh at a certain point in time. But there's another word. That, that word en genito refers to something happening that didn't previously exist. There came a point in time where John the Baptist came into being. There came a point in time when the word took on flesh. Prior to that time, he didn't have a human nature. He didn't have flesh. But there was a time when those things happened. The second Greek word is different. It's just the word en, E-N. And it signifies existence. Not something that came into being, but something that exists. It's used in John 8, 58. You probably remember this where he's, he's, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and they say, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw my day and was glad. And they are shocked. And they say, what are you talking about? You're not 50 years old. How can you possibly say that Abraham saw your day and was thrilled? And Jesus says, before Abraham in Genito came into existence, I am, I was, I existed. That's the second Greek word. It's that second word that's used where it says, in the beginning existed the word. Not came into being the word, but in the beginning existed the word. So in, ver in John's very first statement, he ascribes to this person that he calls the word eternity of being. And only God has that attribute. Everything other than God had a beginning. Only God has eternal self-existence. And in the first statement of John's gospel, he says, this one has eternal self-existence. He, he has always been God. Now, the Old Testament said something along these lines. You might be familiar with Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We read it at Christmas time. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And then it says, whose goings forth are of old from everlasting. This one that will come out of Bethlehem will be one whose existence has been of old from everlasting. The Living Bible simply says, who has been alive from everlasting ages past. You know, it's, it's interesting, but nearly all the heretical groups, the cults that arise, attack this particular point. Whether it's Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses, they simply repeat the error of a man by the name of Arius who claimed there was once a time when he was not, when the word wasn't. As I say, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they will say of Jesus that he was the first created of God. But that's not what John is saying. John is not saying he was the first created of God. He was saying he was the God who created. And wherever you go back in time, he existed. In the beginning, John says, was existed, self-existence, this one called the Word. Now, I'm sure you know, but the, the, the word, the English word, word, is the Greek word logos. And, and uh, you, you kind of wonder, why did John use that term? Why didn't he say Jesus? Why didn't he say Lord? Why didn't he say Son? Why didn't he say in the beginning was Jesus? In the beginning was the Lord. The, why, why this term, the word? The name Jesus was given to him as his at his incarnation. It was, if you like, his human name, and it described what he came to earth to do. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
I'm sure you're aware, but Jesus is derived from the Hebrew word Joshua, Jehovah saves. But that was his, the name given to him at the incarnation. This is this Logos, what, what, what's with that word? Why did they call him the Logos? Now, just on a practical basis, a, a word is a connecting link between two people. It's a pattern of sounds that expresses the thought of one person's mind and it's able to enter another person's mind and it provides a link between the two of them. It gives expression to and reveals the thoughts of one person to another. Several times in scripture we are asked the question, who has known the mind of the Lord? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, and of course the answer is, well, nobody. We can't possibly know what God thinks unless he speaks to us, unless he tells us. You don't even know what I'm thinking unless I tell you. And the only medium I have to express what's in my mind into yours is, is words. God expressed himself in the person of Jesus. He is the medium, the vehicle of communication between God and man. He is the word that connects the link. And there's real history behind this word logos. John isn't just making up a word and throwing it out into the culture. There was an understanding at this time around this word logos. It was a word that communicated to his first readers. 600 years before John, a philosopher by the name of Heraclitus asked a question and he said, is there any meaning, any purpose, any pattern, any logos in life? Any logic? In, I mean, he's a bit like a postmodern thinker looking, what on earth is life all about? Is there any meaning? Is there any pattern? Is there any logos? That's the question he's asking. Another one said, Logos is the rational principle, the agent of creation. Now the Greeks weren't ever thinking of a person when they used the word Logos. They were thinking of some kind of philosophical idea. Is there any logic in the world? Men and women have always sought for meaning in life. All our intellectual pursuits, actually, as they're described in university courses, have this word Logos embedded in them. So you go and do biology, it's biologos. You go and do psychology, it's suke logos. You study sociology, it's the social logos. What's the patterns that are going on in the biology, in the psychology, in the sociology? We look for patterns, we look for meaning, we are searching for logos. We've always wanted meaning, we're meaning-seeking animals. Plato once spoke about the insolubility of life's mysteries, and he said, I hope that one day there will come forth from God a logos that will make everything clear to us, because we're in the dark. We are struggling to try and work out what this means. If only we could have a logos. Now, as I said, he wasn't thinking of a person, of course. The Greeks spoke of logos as a kind of a principle of rationality lying deep beneath the whole cosmos. But it was an abstract idea, not a person. John arrives on the scene and he says, I know this Logos. The Logos that you are seeking is not an impersonal it. It is a personal he. He is God and he's the meaning of it all. Paul was later to say, in Colossians chapter one, verse seven, and he is before all things, and in him 
all things consist. The Moffat translation says, in him all things cohere. Without him, we have nothing but incoherence. When he comes, they cohere, they make sense. There is a pattern. In the beginning was the Logos, and John says, and the Logos was with God. It's in the very two, first two phrases of John's gospel, we have two of the most difficult concepts in the entire Bible. We have this idea of eternity. Wherever you go back, however far you go back, the word existed. He did not come into being, he always was there. And the second thing that you have in these first couple of phrases is the Trinity. And the word was with God. The Greek word translated with is the word pros, and it has the idea of face-to-face intimate communication and united activity. And it implies unity, equality, coexistence. G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great scholars of the 20th century said, its suggestion is that of facing God in perpetual approach of nearness and cooperation of activity. Facing God, approaching God, acting as God. Here we have the Trinity. Profound mystery, but nevertheless taught within the scriptures. The third verse of the, the third phrase of the first verse is categorical in its assertion. And the word was God. In the beginning was the word. He's always existed. And the word was with God in face-to-face communion. And in case you didn't get it, and the word was God. What an explosive start. You're looking for logos, you're looking for meaning, it's found in a person, not in an impersonal it. Throughout the verses, the Greek tense is in an imperfect form, which basically suggests that this thing is continuous. So in the beginning was the word, a continuous fact, and the word was with God continuously, and the word was God constantly. That's how that first phrase Translates in the Greek. So John clearly asserts that the Logos possesses and eternally manifests the very nature of God. And he clearly wants you to understand that the rest of the gospel must be seen through the lens of that verse. The one that we are about to tell you about. The signs that I'm about to share with you and, uh, and that are designed to get you to be a believing person and will ultimately result in Zoe, all have to do with this one who has eternally self-existed in face-to-face communion with God as God. The deeds that we are about to read about are nothing other than the deeds of God. The words that we are about to hear spoken are nothing other than the words of God. You know, you'll often hear people concede that Jesus was a good man uh, on the level of, say, Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, but you can only make that claim if you have never read the Gospels and never particularly read John's Gospel because John didn't say anything of the kind. He starts off and says he isn't like anything that we have ever seen. Other people come into existence. Ingenitio. This one has always existed. Then it goes on in verse two and three. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, talk about one, two punches. 
John is, he's, he's into it and the punches are flying. And I mean, you get hit three times in the first phrase and he just does not let up. He starts to talk about um, his relationship to creation, his antiquity. The Logos existed before creation. Verse two is really a restatement of verse one. The beginning goes back into eternity past. He predated the created order. He's responsible for it. He's not the first created by God. He was the God who first created. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. He's, He's steaming. He says it positively. All things were made by him. He says it negatively. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Paul says the same in Colossians. Christ himself, this is chapter one, verse 16. Christ himself is the creator who made everything in heaven and earth. The things we can see, the things we can't. The spirit world with its kings and kingdoms, its rulers and authorities, all were made by Christ for his own use and glory. He was before all else began and it is his power that holds everything together. And the writer to the Hebrews, in the last days he's spoken to us in the person of his son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, also by and through whom he created the worlds and the reaches of space and the ages of time. He made, produced, built, operated, and arranged them in order. If you're not sure, that's the Amplified. Most of you would have guessed that. Where in Revelation it says in chapter three, verse 14, that, that Christ is the beginning of the creation of God that does not mean he's the first created. Some people point to that and say, see, Arius was right. He is the beginning of the creation of God. That doesn't mean that. It means he is the originator of the creation of God. Barclay translates it. He's the moving force of the creation of God. The Living Bible says he's the primeval source of God's creation. He started it all with God and he created as God. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's the source of life. He's the significance of life. So he's the source of life. In him is life, it says. He's the significance of life, and the life was the light of men. Verse nine says, that was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. By that I understand it to mean that his creative touch has left its imprint on every single man and woman who comes into the world. But like a watermark on a piece of paper, we were made by him for him. His life put light into the hearts of each one of us. And I, I think there's an intuitive awareness in the heart of every single person that there is something behind and beyond it all. I don't think that's something that has to be taught. I think intuitively we know that. I think it has to be educated out of us, actually. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 says, Eternities, he put eternity in the hearts of men. And, and his creative touches in us. His light, is the life of, his life is the light of men. Verse five says, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. That doesn't mean the light doesn't understand it. The Greek word katalambano means, um, thank you, he didn't overcome, it, it couldn't overcome him. Okay, so it's not so much a matter of it doesn't understand, but rather it cannot overcome. That light shined in the darkness, the darkness could not overcome it. Um, golly, there is so much here and I don't really know where to even stop. 
and start. Verse 10 and 11 of that. This whole idea of the challenge of darkness to light. That's a theme that runs right through John's gospel. The acceptance, rejection, the light, the darkness. It, it is mentioned in the prologue and it's just, it's developed. He was in the world, the world was made by him, the world knew him not, he came to his own and his own received him not. You know in the Greek there's a little bit of a distinction. It says he came to his own things but his own people didn't receive him. His own things did. He spoke to the storm and it stopped. He spoke to the fishes, says, get into the net. And they said, yes, sir, and jumped into the net. He looked at the bread and said, multiply it. He came to his own things, his own things, except it was his own people. Tragic. His own people that didn't receive him. And then verse 12 says, it's this acceptance, rejection thing again, but as many as received him. To them he gave the power to become the sons of God, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of will of men, but of God. So there are those who reject him, there are those who accept him. To adapt Shakespeare, to believe or not to believe, that is the question. That's John's gospel. Actually, Graham Scroggy, in his uh, breakdown of John, he uses his plan of John's structure around these ideas of rejection and acceptance. So he says, the period of consideration that Tenney talked about, he says, that's the first manifestation of the word in the beginnings of faith and unbelief. Chapters five through 12 are the development of unbelief in Israel. Chapters 13 through 17 are the development of faith in the disciples. Chapters 18 and 19 is the consummation of unbelief in Israel manifested in the passion. Chapter 20 is the consummation of faith in the disciples. And chapter 21 is the manifestation of the Lord for the correction of unbelief and confirmation. So his whole idea is built around this idea of acceptance, rejection. The battle of light versus darkness. So in those first 18 verses of John, there are really three key verses, all the rest are parenthetical. You could actually leave them out and those three verses would make sense. So the, first, the three verses are verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. And then the 18th verse, no man has seen God at any time but the only begotten son which is in the bosom of the father, he hath declared him. Those three verses are the guts of the prologue. The rest fill it in, but those three verses are crucial. Verse one, three statements. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. Verse 14, three statements. The word was made flesh, he dwelt among us. That word dwelt means literally he pitched his tent among us. I said before, you can't read the latter part of the prologue without thinking of Exodus because he, it literally means he tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Men, the Jewish readers are immediately thinking about the tabernacle in the wilderness that they built, the tent that they pitched, the glory of God that came, among, came in it. Moses is up the mountain saying, God, show me your glory. And, and God passed by and, and was merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in um, steadfast love and truth. That phrase, steadfast love and truth, is translated into the Greek, full of grace and glory. This is, this is the restatement of the Exodus here. 
So the word was made flesh. He pitched his tent among us and was full of grace and truth. Verse 18 has two statements. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. The, um, the word declared, you might have heard me say this before, but the word declared is a Greek word from which we get our English word exegesis. Now, when somebody does an exegesis of scripture, the hope is that they take a passage that might be quite difficult and as they exegete it, they bring it out, show you the, what the words mean, how they fit together, and you go away thinking, oh, wow, I see it. Now, I know that doesn't always work, but that's the goal of exegesis. Here we have the only begotten son who comes and exegetes the father's heart. You wanna know what the father is like? Look at Jesus, okay? He says to Philip, Philip says, show us the father, and you can almost hear Jesus still. Philip, have I been with you this long, and you still don't get it. If you've seen me, you have seen the father. Sometimes people talk about, um, you know, you, if you read Luther and Calvin and these guys, they sometimes talk about Deus Obsconditus, the God who hides in the shadows and who's somewhat different to Jesus. I might be doing them an injustice here. But, but I want to just say to you, there isn't a God who hides in the shadows. Jesus brings him out in the light. And if you can't see something in Jesus, you will not find it in God. There is not some mysterious plan in the heart of the Father that is not revealed in the person of the Son. He exegetes the Father's heart. I'm gonna skip some of my stuff here. The eternal divine logos that we're introduced to in the first verse becomes flesh. And there's probably no doctrine outside the Trinity and eternity that has caused so much heresy in the church as the doctrine of the incarnation. The eternal Logos becomes the man, Christ Jesus. The word was, came into existence in flesh. He has always existed, but there came a time when he became something that previously he wasn't. He became flesh. And he expressed himself in a human personality that was visible, tangible, ordeal. He partook of flesh and blood with all its limitations of space and time, with its physical handicaps of fatigue and hunger and its susceptibility to suffering. When he became flesh, he didn't cease what he had been before. When Lot's wife became a pillar of salt, she ceased being what she had been previously. That is not what is implied here. When he became flesh, it's more like what happened when Lot became the father of Moab and Ammon. He remained what he was, although he entered into a new relationship as well. He, he wasn't something completely different than he was previously. There is that continuity, but he becomes flesh. He remains the eternal logos, but he enters into a new relationship as well. And the church creeds tell us he is 100% God, and he's 100% man. And they call that in theology the hypostatic union. It's a tremendous mystery. Uh, you know, we, we just, we get to a point where words fail, ideas fail. But that's what he was. Very God, very man. In becoming flesh, he became fully a human being and he shared our human nature. Hebrews chapter two tells us that. 
Since the children were made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by its death, it says. E. Stanley Jones put it beautifully, a missionary to China, and he said, we have such high-powered wires with such high voltage that it's unusable unless it goes through a transformer and is therefore made available with safety in lowly homes for lowly usages. John is the transformer of God. He is God on our terms. He enters our lowly doors and becomes intimate, tender, and approachable. I thought that was quite cool. Paul speaks about this mystery of the incarnation when he says he had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what, not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. Do you know what? When Jesus ascended, he did not leave his humanity. I've done with that. I'm finished. The Bible tells us that there is a mediator between God and man presently sitting at the right hand of God, and he is the man, Christ Jesus. Something eternally transpired in the Godhood, in the Godhead, rather, when Jesus became flesh. Verse 18 says, no man has seen God at any time, and I you know, people read that and say, oh, what about Moses? He, you know, he saw the glory of God pass by and God says he meets with Moses like a friend face to face. What about Ezekiel? What about Isaiah? Well, I think the idea is that no man fully comprehends. Dake's Bible says, no man has ever comprehended or experienced God at any time in his fullness but the only begotten son. That, that word begotten, by the word, doesn't connotate something that comes, you know, like he was begotten by God. He was we use the word beget to, to have the idea of a father begetting a son. It's not used that way. It has to do with uniqueness. It's the one of a kind rather than some reference to pro, uh, procreation. So the, uh, the one of a kind son. You know, it's interesting, but a number of the older and most reliable manuscripts have the only begotten God. No man has seen God at, only to- at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, not son, but God. He has done an exegesis. I love the Amplified. No man has ever seen God at any time, the only unique son or the only begotten God who is in the bosom, in the intimate presence of the Father, he has declared him. He's revealed him and brought him out where he can be seen. He's interpreted him and made him known. That's the prologue, and as I said, honestly, we could spend the rest of the time just exploring it. It is as deep as you want to get. Sometimes I hear people saying, oh, you know, I'll never forget my first church I was part of and pastoring. Some women came up and they said, we have deep, deep truth that has gone beyond Jesus. And I just said to them, you're in deeper than you think, lady. I said, there isn't anything deeper than Jesus, I'm sorry. And uh, you know, this, is, this is as profound as it gets. And as I say, John wants us to read the rest of the gospel with this in mind. This is the introduction. This is the lens through which we now read his deeds, his words, because these are the deeds of the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, and he's bringing him out so that we can see him. So we enter from verse 19 of John chapter one into this period called the period of consideration. And it's during this time that Jesus reveals himself in ever widening circles. 
First of all, John the Baptist sees him. Then the disciples, the first disciples. He goes to Jerusalem and cleanses the temple. In Judea, in Samaria, in Galilee, he's, he's putting himself out there for people's evaluation and consideration. Sometimes this period is referred to as the quiet year. And John chapters one through five cover approximately one year of ministry. So John the Baptist is ministering, but he's giving way to Jesus. He's decreasing so Jesus can increase. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all pick up the story at the end of that year, at the beginning of the second year, when John has gone into prison. Their stories cover a period of two, maybe two and a half years. John virtually ignores the periods that the synoptics cover. As I said to you before, he doesn't cover a lot. The only overlap between John and the synoptics is chapter six, all right? The first five are before the synoptics, the last portion of John, he's dealing with different stuff. So John is ministering, John the Baptist is ministering. And uh, verse 19 says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him uh, from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? John had created a real stir. He'd been preaching for approximately six months and he came to bear witness, verse six tells us, and uh, the, the, the Jewish leaders are concerned that the crowds are pouring out into the wilderness to hear this man speak. They want to know who he is, what authority he has to baptize, so they send a delegation, a deputation out to ask him some questions. Um, Jesus, by the way, spoke and I'm sure you're aware of this, but he spoke incredibly highly of John. He said, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John. That's unbelievably high praise. And he described him as a burning and shining light. And the Bible says in Matthew 3 that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and from all over the Jordan. Josephus, the historian, said everybody turned to John for they were profoundly stirred by what he said. Herod feared John's so extensive influence over the people that he thought he might lead an uprising since the people seemed to likely to do everything that he would counsel. He had incredible sway. John spent, we don't know how many years, in the wilderness and his ministry was probably six months in duration. That's a huge preparation for six months of public ministry, but what a ministry unbelievably powerful. The expectations of the nearness of the Messiah proliferated and John's impact created news that traveled so quickly that Jerusalem was aroused. The, the religious leaders, they have to send an investigating uh, committee. You, you know, turf and titles are significant when there's a religious spirit operating and anything that threatens turf and titles has to be treated in an incredibly guarded way. Now, they gave John slightly more latitude than they gave Jesus because at least John was from a priestly family. Jesus was just the carpenter from Nazareth. And it does say they rejoiced in his light for a season. The season lasted as long as he wasn't threatening the established powers, but as soon as he began to do that, he was rejected. It's a fascinating verse in Luke chapter seven, verse 30, and it says, the Pharisees and the experts in the law frustrated God's purposes for them when they refused Jesus' baptism. You can frustrate the purposes of God concerning yourself, and they did, because they refused John. 
The deputation comes to John and says, who are you? And uh, John affirms for a start who he is not. And I find that fascinating because sometimes people say, oh, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life and I haven't really, you know, I'm not quite sure. And I often say to them, you know, sometimes you find out who you are by finding out who you're not. And I'll never forget in my early ministry, you know, the number of things that I was asked to do and at the end of that, I did them, and, but at the end of that, I thought, I'm not that. Yeah, if I have to do that, I'm gonna go back to school teaching because that's not me. You know, sometimes you find out who you are by finding out who you're not. So who are you, John? And they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am not the Messiah. Well, are you Elijah? You know, there was a common belief based on the scripture in Malachi chapter four, verse five and six, that, the, that Elijah would come before the Messiah. It says, see, I will send you another prophet like Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful judgment day of God. And his preaching will bring fathers and children together again and they'll be of one mind and one heart. So they're anticipating the Messiah. So they think, well, if the Messiah's coming and you're not him, you must be the one that comes before. You must be Elijah. It was a reasonable question. Uh, given the manner of G John's diet and dress and geographical location, there were very, very definite parallels between him and Elijah. But John's response was, I am not. So, well, they will, you know, who are you? I mean, interesting that that, when he said, I am not Elijah, that created some confusion among Jesus' disciples because Jesus was later to say, if you're willing to receive it, he is the Elijah that comes. Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And I say to you, Elijah has come already and they, didn't not, they did not know him. And he goes on to say, then the disciples understood that he was speaking about John the Baptist. Well, this gets confusing. John says he's not Elijah. Jesus says, well, you know, if you want to accept that he is Elijah. He wasn't saying this is Elijah reincarnated. What he was saying is this man comes in the same spirit and power as Elijah did. And if you can see it, in one sense, he is the Elijah that was prophesied. What we see through John's gospel, and it reoccurs again and again and again, is a kind of crass, crude literalism in the way that the Jewish people interpreted scriptures and, and, and the things that Jesus said. So here they say, well, he's either Elijah or he's not. And Jesus is saying, well, he's not. And Elijah said, no, uh, John said, no, I'm not. And Jesus said, but if you can understand and catch it in the same spirit and power. And then later he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they go, what a joke. This thing's being built for 46 years. And they never let him forget that, by the way. When he was on the cross, they called out to him, said, you're the one that said that you'd rebuild the temple in three days. You can't even save yourself. Loser. There's a kind of crass literalism. When, when he's talking to the woman at the well, he starts talking about water of life and she says, but you haven't even got a bucket. So, when, he, when he's talking about the manna that comes from heaven, the true bread that you've got to eat. You're going to go, eat it? What are you talking about? He's talking about eating and drinking flesh and blood and they got so offended they walked off. There's this kind of crass literalism. They can't see what he's talking about. Right. So are you, are you Elijah? No, I'm not, says John. Well, are you the prophet? And his answers are getting shorter and shorter. No. <laughs> Just, 
Uh, when they were asking, are you, they weren't saying, are you a prophet? They were saying, are you the prophet that Deuteronomy chapter 18 talked about? Moses said that God would raise up for you a prophet like me in the midst of your brethren and him you will listen to. This is, this is the prophet par excellence. And, and they're saying, well, if you're not Messiah, you're not Elijah, could you, are you the prophet? No, I'm not. No, he says, finally. They will come on. We've got to go back to the Pharisees with an answer here. Give it, help, help us out a little bit. Who are you? And John says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm not Elijah that Malachi spoke of. I'm not the prophet Moses spoke of. I am the voice that Isaiah spoke of. Listen, I hear the voice of someone shouting, make a road for the Lord through the wilderness. Make straight, smooth road through the desert. Fill the valleys, level the hills. Straighten out the crooked paths. Smooth out the rough spots in the road. The glory of the Lord will be seen by all mankind. Isaiah 43 to 5, that's who I am. That's what I'm doing. The imagery, of course, was taken from the days when there weren't any paved roads, only tracks across the fields, and if someone really important was coming, if royalty was coming, the track would be smooth so that the royal chariot might not find it unduly rough. Obstructions would be removed. Difficulties would be taken out of the place. And John says, that's my job. I'm smoothing out the road so the real Messiah will come. So the religious people are questioning his credentials to baptize people. John basically ignores them from this point on by way of contrasting himself with the one who's to come. He says, there stands one among you that you do not know. Uh, literally in the Greek it has the idea he, is, he has stood and he is standing. It seems that Jesus had been among the crowds and he had been baptized some 40 days earlier. John doesn't record this since the synoptics cover it adequately. But it seems now that Jesus, having just come back from his time in the wilderness, is standing there as this dialogue is going on. And he says, there is one who has stood and who is standing among you right now. And my question is, why didn't they ask John to point him out? Why wouldn't you say where, who, who, who is it? I think my curiosity would have got the better of me. I would have said, John, if he's here, which one is he? They didn't know him and didn't want to. They were eager to point out, they were more eager to point out possible false messiahs than they were to find out the real one. You know, when you've got a religious spirit, it's more interested in protecting its own title and turf rather than inquiring into anything new that God might be doing. Just want to make sure that things don't get disturbed, that I keep my title and I keep my turf. John says that he's not even worthy to untie the sandal straps of this one who is going to come. You know, the rabbis of that time had a saying, every task a slave does for his master, a disciple shall do for his rabbi, except the loosening of his sandal strap. That was seen as too demeaning. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that if you were a slave. You didn't have to do that if you were the disciple of the rabbi. But John confesses that he's not even worthy to do the lowest of the tasks for this particular one. Uh, verse 28 is interesting, and I'm nearly, we're 
We'll have to stop, it's nearly nine o'clock. I'll just mention this. It says, these things were being done in Beth Abara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Some of your translations will have Bethany. These things were done in Bethany. That is not the same Bethany of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's not that village. This particular place, um, literally it means the ferry house or the place of passage. And tradition has it that this was the very place that Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And it's at that point, the place of transition and crossing, that Jesus is standing there and John says he is here among us. Perhaps it's intended to be significant pointing out that the greater Joshua who would lead the people of God into the true promised land was right there. And so the ministry of Jesus begins because the next day we're introduced to a sequence of seven days which again makes you think about Genesis. We're introduced to a sequence of seven days that culminates in the first miracle, the turning of water into wine. And um, I'll touch on that next week. Um, on this day, John's testimony is given, not in answer to questions, but unsolicited. He sees Jesus coming and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is a new note in John's testimony. Up to this point, he'd said this one will come with a fan in his hand, he'd come with fire, he'll come with an axe, he'll come and burn up all the chaff, he'll exalt the mountains and, uh, uh, the, uh, and uh, lower the mountains rather and exalt the valleys. And, and, but suddenly, this is a different note altogether, a lamb who will come and take away the sins of the world. He's the fulfillment of all the lambs of the Old Testament. Abraham's lamb, the Passover lamb the daily sacrifice of the lamb. All of the lambs of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in this particular one. John comments twice that he didn't know him, and that's unusual because John and Jesus were second cousins, and given the nature of extended families in the time, it was highly unlikely that he didn't know Jesus. I think probably they were well acquainted, but what John is saying is I never knew them as, him as Messiah until God pointed him out supernaturally. I saw the Holy Spirit descend on him in the bodily form of a dove. So John is saying, I, I, I know this man, but I didn't know this about him. I, I never knew this. Um, and I'll finish with this thought. He said, he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Previously he said, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's John 3.16. He baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. That's Luke 3.16. Everyone knows John 3.16, but we should also know Luke 3.16. He is the one who comes and baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. Those are the two powerful parts of his ministry. He comes to save people and empower them. And John points this out right at the beginning. And we've taken an hour and a half and we haven't even finished chapter one. You can understand why I've got 160 pages and I'm only barely starting and I've missed a whole lot of stuff out because <laughs> I'm thinking we're never going to get through this. So I'm probably, we're pretty sure we won't cover the whole thing. But let's make a start. Go home, read the gospel. Read again the prologue and just think everything else that I'm going to look at in John, I have to see through this lens. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't comprehend it and understand it and overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We're into the parenthetical stuff. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has exegeted him. Wow, what a start. That's pretty impressive. That's like scoring five tries in the first three minutes of a test against the Wallabies. It's over. Okay. So, we'll stop there. I'm sorry, we really haven't got time for questions. If you've got some, shoot them to me on an email and I'll never answer them, but <laughs> it'll, it'll, uh, it'll, it, it might help you. Okay. Father, thank you that and we can delve into your word. Thank you for the phenomenal power that it has. You said that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Let it have its full effect in us, change us, shape us, make us awed disciples who having believed into Christ, keep on believing. And because of that believing, know life. It's our request, our prayer. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.